One of the themes of Hanukkah, maybe not a major theme, but a, an idea which appears in various medieval sources in connection with Hanukkah, later sources, is the story of Yehudas, Judith in English. Judith is a, in the book of Judith, the book of Judith is a biblical type of book. We Jews do not include it in our Bible. We never paid any attention to it. Some Christians do, Protestants don't. Some of the various, various forms of Christians consider it uh, part of the Bible, Old Testament. Some consider it uh, Apocrypha. We Jews don't really pay any attention to it at all. But the book of Judith is an ancient work, the story of a beautiful and uh, rich and uh, very, very pious widow named Judith. Exactly when the story occurs is not entirely clear. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in the story, which would put it uh, end of the First Temple era. But the, the story is a little problematic to date properly on its own terms. But the story of Judith is the enemy is oppressing the Jewish people. They're oppressing Yerushalayim. So this woman, Judith, she goes out and she, 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 she approaches the, the enemy general, Halifornus, who's enamored of her beauty, and uh, everyone apparently thinks very highly of her. So she goes to him, she plies him with wine, everyone gets very, very drunk. Not her, apparently, but everyone else gets drunk. She goes in with her servant, she cuts off his head, kills him, and by doing this great act of defiance, this brave act of defiance, she saves Yushalayim, saves the Jews, and she is held up as a great heroine. Not entirely clear why we don't accept the story as biblical. It may simply not, have, even though it's a nice story, maybe it may simply not have been a true story or not have been uh, an important story that that Chachamim felt may not have been biblically inspired. But whatever it is, we we don't we don't do much with the Book of Judith itself. Many 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 pious Orthodox Jews have probably never heard of the Book of Judith. I, I always remember one of my first encounters with the, some of the books of the Apocrypha. I would be wandering through art museums, and I would see paintings on the wall. Some of them I would recognize, uh, like the angel appearing to Hagar in the, in the desert. Some of them were obviously New Testament uh, scenes, the Last Supper, or whatnot, scenes from the New Testament. But every now and then I, I, would, I would get thrown for a loop. I would see a painting with something I really didn't recognize, like something like, uh, something like uh, the story of, from the book of Susanna, and it would say, from the Old Testament book of Susanna. And I would say to myself, I'm not that familiar with the New Testament and Christian, the Christian Bible, but I thought I knew the Old Testament. I mean, my wife knows Tanakh much better than I do, but I thought I at least knew what the Chafdal and Svarim and the Old Testament were, and I'm pretty sure the book of Susanna is not one of them, nor the book of Judith, and so on. Right, but apparently the Christians, not only do they have a New Testament, they have additional books in the Old Testament. Some of them put them in the Apocrypha, Svarim Chitzonim we call it. Some of them put more books in the Old Testament. So the book of Judith is one of these books. The Christians kept it. We, 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 uh, we, we ignored it, mostly. However, when it comes to Hanukkah, beginning with various statements in the medieval authorities and the Rishonim, we find that the story of Judith did actually receive some acceptance in the Jewish tradition, in Armasara. And in Armasara, it's associated with Hanukkah. Beginning about a thousand years ago, we have uh, a handful of sporadic references to the story of Judith in the in in our in our Masorah, in Rishonim and Achronim, there are several menhagim of Hanukkah which are associated with the with the story of Yehudas. One is a minhag to eat dairy on Hanukkah because she plied him with milk, according to one version of the story, to get him to sleep. That's parallel to the story of Sisera. The whole story of Judith it resembles the story of Yael and Sisera. 
in Sefer Shoftim, where Yael takes him into her tent and then kills him, kills the general Sistra. There's a minag women, women don't do, some women don't do malacha, don't do work while the candles are burning because of the, the because it's a special yanta for them, because women have a special connection to, to Hanukkah, because Yehudis killed Halifornus. In particular, there's a statement in the Gemara. The Gemara says that there are three, three mitzvahs that women are obligated, even though on general principles perhaps they shouldn't be. Nevertheless, they are chayavos because because they were involved in the nase. Those are Arba Kosos, the four cups of wine on Pesach, hearing the Megillah on Purim, and Ner Hanukkah. Women are obligated in Ner Hanukkah. And some women rely on husbands or family. Some light themselves. Everyone agrees a woman on her own has to light Ner Hanukkah. Why? These three mitzvahs, women were involved in the nase. How are women involved in the nase? Some Rishonim learn they were victims. They, 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 they were saved by the nase. They were, they were suffering in Egypt, and they were under Haman's genocidal decree, and they were being oppressed by the, by the, by the Greeks during Hanukkah. Some learned they were victims, like everyone else. They were saved. They were, they, they, they were saved by these Nisim. But others learned they were the heroines of these Nisim. Not that they were saved, that they were, they were particularly connected to these Nisim because they were the heroines of the Nase. How? Well, Esther, Esther, of course, for Purim, that's an easy one. Pesach, it says, in the merit of the righteous women, Nashim Tidkaniyos, they were redeemed. And Hanukkah, the Rishonim say, Yael. Hanukkah, they say, Yehudis. Yehudis was the heroine of Hanukkah. She killed the enemy general, and that was a great uh, salvation for Klal Yisrael. Others push back against this. Some of the more uh, scholarly, more familiar with uh, academic scholarship among the Achronim, Rabbi David Gans, the Ramaz Talmud, a noted early Jewish historian, as well as Rabbi Yaakov Emdin, who was a great critical thinker, point out the story has nothing to do with Hanukkah. The story seems to take place much earlier. As you mentioned earlier, it's hard to date it, but it seems to, go, it seems to be considerably earlier. The Christians certainly don't connect it to Hanukkah. So the, the whole connection of the story to Hanukkah is somewhat dubious. But nevertheless, others push back. The, the Munkacher in Muki Arachayim says, Who are you, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, to challenge the Rishonim? The Rishonim say it's a Hanukkah story, and we take it as a Hanukkah story, and don't, don't come with your uh, academic critical scholarship. Um, but uh, nevertheless, so this is Machlokis. It's not really clear what the connection is to Hanukkah. Rabbi Yaakov Emden suggests that if there is a connection to Hanukkah, maybe it's just that it was a relatively small, small nace. It didn't have its own holiday, so they just rolled it into Hanukkah to commemorate it on Hanukkah. Whatever it is, the story of Yehudis is an ancient Jewish tradition, Christian tradition, about a pious and beautiful and brave woman named Yehudis who assassinated a Roman, a Greek, a Greek or Babylonian or some type of general by cutting off his head. And, and there's some connection to Hanukkah according to a number of Jewish sources. Now, if you look in the handout, those of you who have them, the painting, the story of Judith with the head of Halifornus was a remarkably, a strikingly attractive theme for European Christian painters. It's been painted dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of times. Seems every artist of the Renaissance for hundreds of years felt the need to try his hand at, at, the, at painting Judith with the head of Halifornus. I included a couple in the handout, one by Botticelli, another after the, a copy of one by uh, Chris, one Cristofano Allori. These are, these are typical paintings, some of the more dramatic ones. They typically show a beautiful and bold and valorous woman holding a severed head in one hand and holding a sword that will be noted in the other hand. You can see the swords. They're holding swords, which they use to uh, cut off the head. There are other paintings that actually show her cutting the head with the, the, the sword going through the neck with blood all over the place. I omitted those because those were rather gory. 
I found them a little bit uh, disturbing, some of those paintings. But nevertheless, the stories of Judith severing the head of Halifornus, or right after holding up the head of Halifornus. Alternatively, there are, there are paintings that show, I think it was Botticelli also has one of the, the enemy discovering the dead Halifornus. It shows a man with a bloody stump of a neck and everyone, everyone horrified at seeing what happened to him. Very, very popular painting for Christian painters. Jews, not so much. I don't think Jewish artists painted this that much. What I want to discuss tonight, in terms after this uh, preamble, what I want to discuss tonight is, I don't know any tshuvas that actually discuss the story of Yehudas. What I want to discuss, though, is a notable feature of many of these Judith paintings is Judith holding a sword. She typically has the head in her left hand and a sword in her sword arm in the right hand. The question is, is a woman allowed to use swords? There is a Gemara, we'll discuss it soon. A woman is not allowed to use a sword. A woman is not allowed to bear arms, not supposed to carry or bear arms. So is a woman allowed to use a sword? We mentioned earlier the story of Yehudas, people have remarked, it seems to be modeled very closely on the story of Yael and Sisra in Sefer Shoftim. Yael, the heroine of that story, one of the two female heroines along with Dvora, the Yael decapitate, uh, kills Sisra not with a sword. It says she took the peg of a tent, Yadol Yase Tishlachna, she seized a tent peg. Earlier, it describes what she did as. It describes what she did as. Uh, she said it, 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 it says that she. It says that she grabbed the peg of a tent. Vatikach yael ha'ohel, and she took a hammer in her other hand and she struck the hammer at the peg and smashed his head with the, with the peg. She did not use a sword. She used a tent peg, and as we'll see, there are some midrashim that say that she deliberately used a tent peg by design, for, for a very specific reason, and not a sword, not like Judith, who used a sword. In the book of Judith, it explicitly says she didn't come in with a sword. She came in as a woman who was uh, coming in for a night to spend the night with Halifornus, but she came, she grabbed his sword. Once he fell asleep, she grabbed his sword and cut off his head. So, a woman, and, and, and some, there are Midrashim that say that Yael did not use a sword because a woman is not allowed to use a sword. So we're going to discuss tonight two chuvas, two, two mid-20th century chuvas discussing whether women are allowed to bear arms, whether women can go around armed when necessary with uh, firearms. Yes? Um, who, um, how do we even know that Yael even had a sword? So Simcha says maybe Yael simply didn't have a sword. A, a typical woman of that time wouldn't have carried swords. Maybe a, maybe a man wouldn't have had a sword either. Maybe she didn't have a sword, so she used a peg. Maybe, maybe had she had a sword, she would have used a sword as well. It's a good point. Certainly, I'll be pshutish al mikra. One could, uh, one could suggest that. But Chazal, as we'll see, there are Midrashim that say that it was for a halachic reason that she used a peg. So the, the two chuvas we're going to discuss tonight, they're, they're, they're kind of late in on the handout. I got a little carried away with uh, Yael and Sisera here and the Book of Judith. But the, the two chuvas we're going to discuss tonight, one is by Ramosha Feinstein, one is by Ravavadi Yosef. Both of them are discussing essentially the same question. They are discussing women in Israel, women who live in dangerous border areas where there is a serious threat of terrorist infiltration and security policy, prudent security policy would suggest that everyone be armed, women be armed. The question is, this would seem to violate the halacha of prohibiting women from bearing arms. The question is... Why are women not allowed to bear arms? Yes, so, so before we do the chuvas, we'll take a look at the foundational texts, uh, several texts involved. The main one is a Gemara in Nazir. The Gemara in Nazir is discussing the prohibition against cross-dressing, 
Lo yiyach li gever al isha, lo yilbash gever, lo yilbash simlas isha. A man may not wear the garments of a woman. A woman may not wear the accoutrements of a man. What is the Pasuk telling us? So the Gemara brings several different interpretations and examples of the sort of conduct that is prohibited by this Pasuk. And one of the things the Gemara says is that one of the things the Gemara says, Rebbe ben Yaakov Omer, Rebbe ben Yaakov, one of the Tanam says, what this Pasuk is telling us is, Minayin isha How do we know a woman may not sally forth carrying weapons for war? We'll see. The post can discuss every the word mulchama is that significant here? How do we know a woman shouldn't wear, shouldn't bear arms for war? Talmud Lomar, Lo Yechli Gavar Al Isha, Vla Yilbash Gavar Simlas Isha, Shla Yitakin Ish, Bitikune Isha. A man should not wear the, the things of a woman. And a and similarly, a woman should not wear should not bear arms, because arms are considered uh, accessories of a man. So it's not clear if all Tanam agree. This is Rabbi Yazid ben Yaakov's opinion. Rabbi Vadi Yosef and his tshuva points out that the Rishonim generally paskin like Rabbi Yazid ben Yaakov. There's a rule, Mishnaso Kavanaki. The halacha tends to follow his view. And the poskim generally do accept this as halacha. This is, this is the background of their question, him, his, and Rabbi Feinstein's, that a woman is generally not allowed to bear arms. That is, the, that is, the, that is what the Rabbi ben Yaakov said. Targum Unkelis, which is a fairly authoritative source, also on the Pasuk of Leilbash Gevers and Lasisha, also mentions, uh, also mentions that it, it refers to bearing, bearing arms, that a woman can't bear arms. And we mentioned earlier that the Targum Yonason on Shoftim also says that, it, uh, that she used a tent peg because she was not allowed to bear arms. Other Midrashim bring this, the Alka Shimoni, Ravadia bring several Midrashim which say this. So the bottom line is we have a, a tradition going back to the Tanoim that a woman may not bear arms. It's considered a form of cross-dressing. It's considered adopting masculine habits, masculine dress. And even though it's not necessarily universally accepted by the Tanoim, but the postkim, the later postkim, the halachists generally accept this. So that is the background of the question here. A woman is not allowed to bear arms. It's considered a form of cross-dressing. And therefore... Therefore, is a woman who lives in a dangerous, dangerous part of Israel, is she allowed to bear arms for security purposes? Ramosha Feinstein's tshuva was dated Gimel Sivan Tufshin Mem, so that is 1980. It was, it, was a question, it was a question posed to him by his grandson, Rabbi Shabsi Rappaport, a Talmud Chacham in his own right. The question was, in the Yishuv Gush Etzion, dangerous, dangerous area near the Arabs, other, other similar Yishuvim, that are near the Arabs. This is uh, number 11 in the handouts, page 6 or so. They had, there are many Sony Israel and murderers, and uh, it's very important for all Jews there to carry weapons when they, when they travel. Can we allow women to, to carry weapons? There is an Isser, a woman can't wear weapons. Rabbi Rappaport brought several reasons why he thought we, there, there would be basis for leniency. He says, first of all, he said that that uh, what they want to carry is what he calls Nesha Katan Hanikra Ektach, small guns called pistols, not rifles, not, uh, not assault rifles, not, semi, not, uh, not long guns. They want to carry pistols. We'll see why that's relevant soon. And obviously, we all know, or Rappaport knows, or Moshe knows, we, we all know 
that if it's literally a matter of life and death, of course you can carry weapons. If the Pikuach Nefesh overrides all the Yisurim in the Torah, most Yisurim in the Torah, so certainly the, the prohibition against cross-dressing would be overridden by Pikuach Nefesh. If there was a clear and clear Pikuach Nefesh, even a Suffolk Pikuach Nefesh, Kashash Pikuach Nefesh, of course it's Mutter. But Dravay Rappaport was concerned. The reason it wasn't, uh, the reason the answer wasn't obvious is because it's not so dangerous, he says. And again, the Jews are in control. It's, uh, we're not talking about going through an Arab village on foot. We're talking about a, an area controlled by the Israelis. And it's largely safe. And they're just you know, extra precaution. They want to carry a weapon. Furthermore, you can stay home. You can stay, you can stay in the civilized area. You don't have to go out and travel on the road if it's that dangerous. Who asked you to go out? I mean, maybe the fact that you choose to travel, that, 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 that's, that's your decision, but that doesn't give you the right to carry weapons. So, so or they can travel in the company of men who have weapons. So that it isn't absolutely essential for them to carry weapons. They have options. However, it, it, it is, you know, it, 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 it's hard for them to live like that. It's hard for them to lose their independence, to, to have to have male chaperones, to stay home and, with, with, without, without them. It's, it's difficult and inconvenient. So Rabbi Rappaport wanted to find some type of heter for these women to carry weapons. And he had several reasons. One reason is that the, the Taz, the Bach, that the, ta, the Taz holds at least, the Taz says that the, the Shach and the Bach, that the Easter of cross-dressing is only if you do it for aesthetic purposes, to beautify yourself, to make yourself uh, as, a, as a form of style or fashion, that's the issue of cross-dressing. But if you, wear, if you wear something, if you use something for a utilitarian purpose, you're, you're cold. So you want to put on uh, a feminine garment to keep you warm. The only coat you have is a woman's coat. Some posts can say it's mutter. Not all posts can agree, I think, but some posts can say that's mutter. So he says weapons, you don't wear them. They're not, they're not using these weapons for fashion statements. They're wearing these weapons for security. Furthermore, we mentioned earlier, the Gemara says the prohibition against women wearing, women wearing, uh, women, we- women uh, bearing arms is when they go out l'milchama, when they go out for war. This is not war. This is just uh, private security when they travel. Furthermore, military, military personnel do not use little pistols. They use uh, serious guns. They use... Uh, Submachine guns and assault rifles and, and whatnot, they don't carry uh, small arms. I mean, they carry those as well, but, 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 but those, are not the, those are not, I guess, the primary weapons of war. These were the various suggestions proposed by Rabbi Rappaport. Rabbi Moshe accepts some of them, rejects others, and ultimately concludes that it's mutter. The reason he says it's mutter, the main reason is he says, which is probably what, what a lot of us would feel, is... Ultimately, he feels it is a matter of pikuach nefesh, even though it's not, uh, they're not in danger of imminent loss of their life. At the end of the day, he feels it is really a question of pikuach nefesh. But before that, he gets into the various more subtle reasons advanced by Rabbi Rappaport. He says the argument of the Bach and the Taz and the Shach, that only when it's for fashion, when it's for adornment, it's us, or otherwise it's mutter, Ramosha says that is a category error. It's true the post can say that. But that's when, it, that's when it comes to actual garments. Actual garments have two purposes, fashion as well as function. There, the halacha is, if you're wearing it not for fashion but for function, like my example, you're wearing a coat, not because you look good in it, but because you want to stay warm, there we have post-conhuar mekel. However, Moshe says the prohibition against bearing arms for a woman is a completely different prohibition. That has nothing to do with uh, fashion and, uh, and aesthetic, that is a, a different issue that bearing arms fundamentally is considered masculine, Ramosha understands. You can debate this, but this is Ramosha's theory. Ravavadi Yosef, we'll see later, actually likes this far, that, that Rappaport's far, that is not for, uh, for adornment. 
Ramosha rejects it. Ramosha says that only applies to the aspect of the prohibition that, that governs garment, garments, but when it comes to when it comes to weapons, that is a separate issue, he says. And it's uh, and women are always us, regardless of whether it is for the purpose of function or style. He brings that the he brings support for this. He says that he says that uh, on the contrary, he says if, if, when it comes to weapons, if you would wear it for adornment, it would be it might be mutter, he says, because the Ramosh has an elaborate argument that he says that he says there's a machlokus in Shabbos whether Masecha Shabbos whether you whether you're allowed to wear weapons on Shabbos whether they're called carrying or not. The Chum say that it's a, the lost lavo that will beat the swords into plowshares. There won't be any more swords. So with the Gnai, it's not really considered. It's it, it's it's not really considered a garment. So it's uh, so 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 you're so you're. So you're not allowed to wear it on Shabbos, while the while Blazer says no, it's a tachshit. It's considered a it's considered a fashion it's a fashion accessory. Ramosha goes on, however, and he says that the that he says that 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 that, that, that the entire machlokus is whether ordinary swords, the kind of swords that we have in general, are considered adornments or uh, or, uh, or, or 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 just purely functional. He says that's the machlokus. But if you have Something like an a dress or something, which which is meant as as yofi, which is meant as a, as a style. They have these gold plated guns. You have these fancy weapons, which are you go to the museum. You see these really fancy swords that, that were inlaid with gold and fancy carving and jewels, and they really are uh, they really are jewelry. He says. So then he says, and not just not just that the jewelry is that I'm that I'm a hero. I carry a sword, but weapons which are inherently jewelry like and they have the style of jewelry. And everyone agrees it's a takshit, and he says that uh, everyone would agree that you can wear it on Shabbos, he suggests. And he says if a woman would wear jewelry like that, he says, then, uh, like her other jewelry, then, 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 then the prohibition would not apply. The prohibition is dafka when it's from Muhammad. Wearing swords for military purposes, that is considered unfeminine, that's considered masculine, and women are prohibited. But wearing, wearing something for jewelry, women do wear jewelry, he says. That, that, that's what women do. So then, uh, in such a case, he says, if anything, he says, we can argue that, that if they wear it for jewelry, it's more mutter. If they wear it for military purposes, it's more usher. So Rabbi Rappaport wanted to argue, or if Yosef is going to argue, that since they're not wearing the weapons for adornment, that's as far as to be matter, because it's not mulchama. Ramosha says just the opposite. Wearing a sword for mulchama, that's, uh, that, 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 that's exactly the purpose that, the, that we do pro- pro- prohibit weapons. If the women are wearing it, they, the woman does not think she looks good carrying a a revolver at her hip, she just does it because she thinks she has to, then in such a case, he said, that's exactly what Chazal prohibited. That's exactly what the Torah prohibits because she's wearing the weapon, which is a masculine function. A masculine thing is to wear weapons, and she's doing it. So, Ramosha argues that... Protecting herself because Nefesh is not a masculine thing. Nefesh, yeah. She's protecting herself. That's, that's it. <clears throat> and her family, uh, through, through a sword, that's not a, that's not a feminine thing, a, a masculine thing. It's just uh, what you do to protect yourself and your, and your people. Yeah, so as we said, ultimately Ramosha is going to say that the Heter is Bikuach Nefesh. Ultimately he is going to say that the that, that, that there is a Heter of Bikuach Nefesh. But nevertheless, this style of Bikuach Nefesh, the style of wearing weapons, is typically something Ramosha says, Chazal that the Torah tells us is a masculine style. It's true, anyone will do anything if necessary for Bikuach Nefesh. A woman will take a gun as well. And uh, that, that, that's true. But nevertheless, in, in general, right, you're suggesting perhaps that in the situation of danger, it's a feminine style as well as a masculine style. But the, 
But nevertheless, Ramosha argues at some length. We're not going to get into all the intricacies of his argument, but 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 Ramosha argues that uh, at, at some length that the that that wearing a weapon for functional purposes is fundamentally masculine. That's what the Gemara prohibits, and therefore he argues that that itself would not be a reason to be lenient. The other Sfarim Rappaport said, however, that's not it's not a military that's not a military thing. Military they wear more you know, they they use more powerful, more more effective weapons. Small arms, not even small arms, but uh, handguns are not military weapons. And generally says that Ramosha says is a uh, is is a, is a possible reason to be matir. That war is a masculine activity, but again, this is similar to what Max was saying. Small guns, small guns, handguns, which are used in self-defense, are used in, in, in non-military context. So the non-military context, context in which handguns are used, that we don't find is necessarily a masculine-specific thing. The, 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 the long guns, which are used for war, war is a masculine activity. But small guns, Ramosha says, that's different. If they're not military weapons, then maybe it's not specific to, to masculine. So that, that, he agrees, is a possible svara to be matir, even before we get to Bikyok Nefesh. The fact that the weapon is not a military weapon, it's not a weapon of war primarily, it's primarily a weapon, a civilian weapon. So that, Ramosha says, is something that we could, uh, is a ground for leniency. Furthermore, he says, he says, Be'etzem, he says, as a matter of din, Halacha Lamaisi, he says, Pashut, it's self-evident, he says, that places that are near Arab territories, the murderous Arabs, Arviyim Harotchim, he says, who, they're not scared of the Israeli government, or Rappaport said, it's pretty safe, uh, the, the Israelis are in control. Well, yes, they're, they're in control to some extent, but there are also certain parts of Arab society that are not too impressed by Israeli control, and are perfectly willing to uh, break Israeli law and murder Israeli citizens, and so on. Maisim B'chal Yomi says that we see they're not scared of the government, so it's clearly Pikoch Nefesh. In such a case, he says, it is permitted for women to carry weapons, not just to save themselves from getting killed, from getting killed by a terrorist, he says, even if it's just to save themselves from other forms of abuse, from, from, from blows, from getting beaten up, or having stones thrown at them, I suppose. He says in these kinds of wars, Muhammad's Kitanos, these small skirmishes, obviously if, if you're in one you get killed, it's not small for you, but the point is they're small-scale engagements, they're not uh, grand military tank battles with uh, divisions on each side, they're, they're, they're small, uh, you know, the small-scale the small skirmishes, he says, in these types of situations, uh, the, where the borderline of civilian and military is porous, you're not dealing with uh, grand Napoleonic war era style uh, you know, engagements. He says these types of battles that that is woman like. Women don't engage in the great set piece battles like Gettysburg, but they, they do engage in these types of uh, fighting for your life against uh, against uh, terror against terrorist infiltrators. He says. So he says uh, in such a context where it's bikuach nefesh. And it's uh, the clear and present danger in this type of context, even without invoking the heterop nefesh he's saying now, the mere fact that in these types of engagements, women and men are equal, they're, they're all potential victims, they, they, they all have the need to defend themselves. A woman can't go running to a man every time there's a terrorist uh, breaching the perimeter, he says. So, and he doesn't say that, but I'm elaborating on what he says. So in such a case, he says that the, there's no difference between men and women. Everyone takes whatever whatever is needed. That's not considered uh, <laughs> under the prohibition of cross-dressing, he says. That's considered the derech of women as well. Even if in general, he says, it, even if it's as a matter of fact, it is true that women are not trained in uh, the use of firearms anywhere near men, even if it is, as a matter of actual fact, primarily masculine, he says, that doesn't matter, he says. That, that's not because it's unfeminine. That's because women, they're not used to guns. They, 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 they don't train as much, but that, that doesn't make it inherently an unfeminine thing. The fact that uh, 
the fact that uh, they, they, they should, they could, he says. They, he says that, the, so first of all, he says, the use of arms in situations of, of these types of uh, less formal, small-scale engagements, the, the bearing of arms in such context is not masculine as opposed to feminine. It is fundamentally as feminine as it is masculine, which is pretty much what Max was saying. Furthermore, he says, it is a matter of pikuach nefesh. He says that uh, th- there is a real danger to life over here. It doesn't have to be 50%, but there's a real danger to life. Pikuach nefesh overrides everything, even if it would be considered masculine. Pikuach nefesh overrides the prohibition against bearing arms. To tell him they should... What about, joint, what about being part of the IDF? Sorry, we're not discussing that. We're not, we're not, discussing, we're not discussing joining the, the military itself. That, that is a different topic, which, has, which involves a number of other issues as well. But, uh, right, that would be a whole, a whole different question. The, 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 the first Farah Moshe has doesn't apply because they are, part of, they are participating in a military force with military weapons. Others address that as well, but I, I, I don't think we're going to get to that question tonight. That, that's an important question, certainly, but uh, I don't think we're going to get there tonight. So Moshe says... Yes? Um, I'm wondering if you have any sense from Rav Moshe or what other people have written about whether uh, weapons not being a woman thing is culturally dependent. So, for example, I was reading recently about the fighting on the Eastern Front during World War II, and it seems like the Soviets had women as pilots and as um, shooting artillery. Maybe not as clear that they were, like, fighting in tanks or in infantry. So I'm wondering, and actually the Germans were, like, very surprised and, like, sort of squeamish about the fact that they've been, like, fighting women. Right. That they've, like, killed women. So I'm curious if you think Rob Moshe would say cultural differences would be a factor. Here. Right. So, so Michael's asking an interesting question, that uh, to what extent do these halachas depend on cultural differences, and would Ramosha, uh, would Moshe's opinion uh, perhaps depend on or be different because of that? This is actually a very important question in all the laws of cross-dressing in general, to what extent are the halachas fixed by some kind of objective, timeless notion of what is masculine and what is feminine? To what extent are the halachas culturally dependent? So on the one hand, there are a number of halachas which the post can say do change based on cultural mores. For example, in the time of the Talmud, one of the examples the Talmud gives of the, of that are, that's included in the cross-dressing prohibition is a man using a mirror. Men did not use mirrors then, back then, when men were men and women were women, and men didn't use mirrors. And uh, so using a mirror to, to primp and groom yourself was considered feminine, and therefore men shouldn't use mirrors. Today, of course, men do use mirrors, whether for shaving, for straightening their ties, whether for all the other things, certainly today, all the things men do. So postkim have said, throughout the centuries, postkim have said that, uh, that today, many postkim say a man may use a mirror. There are still some who are strict, there are still some in Hasidic circles in particular, I think, who are stricter about it, but the common custom in non-Hasidic, Ashkenazic circles is men do use mirrors because mirrors, the use of a mirror is no longer considered a, a feminine uh, form of grooming. It's considered masculine as well. There's actually a discussion about pants, about women wearing pants, where, the, where the, some posts can say that women didn't used to wear pants, but today they do. And uh, so the styles have changed, and that one can make the argument that trousers for women, certainly if there are different cuts of trousers for women, even if there aren't, you, know, the, the, you can make the argument that those, those things change as well. So in general, there are discussions in the postkim. Some postkim actually wanted to forbid women to drive on the grounds that driving, this always brings to mind the old Virginia Slims commercials about you've come a long way, baby, showing the woman with the cigarette. Some postkim said smoking is, uh, is considered a masculine activity and the women, women can't do that. Other postkim have pushed back and said that, well, maybe that was true 100 years ago, but it's not true today. 
today women drive and today women smoke and so on. So it is pretty well accepted that at least certain aspects of the prohibition of cross-dressing are, uh, can evolve, can change in, in, in response to, uh, can change in response to, to, to cultures changing. This particular example of women, uh, of women fighting, I don't know. It's certainly possible if things change. With the Soviet Union, so A, the Soviet Union was always founded, at least in principle and theory, on a very, on a very egalitarian uh, notion, a very modern, emancipated notion to throw off the archaic bounds, uh, the archaic, uh, archaic uh, bounds of, of hidebound tradition and uh, bourgeoisie society and so on. And in some ways, the Soviet Union was, I think, somewhat progressive uh, with respect to, uh, to women, more so than the West in certain areas. Uh, in terms of the, the Eastern Front, the, the Russians were also desperate to an extent, uh, to an incredible extent. They did all kinds of things that maybe they wouldn't have done under normal circumstances. Even the Russians who weren't particularly Soviet, who were just, uh, were just uh, angry beyond belief at the betrayal and invasion of the fatherland and so on. Motherland, whatever they call it in Russia. Germany is the fatherland. I, I can never remember who's who. Um, uh, some of them with just uh, desperation and outrage so the women took up arms. Yes, but it's a good point. And it's, and I, I, can't, I certainly can't say what Ramosha would have said. He didn't say it, so it's hard to know. But uh, certainly, in theory, it is certainly a plausible argument that cultures can change in these areas. But anyway, so getting back to Ramosha, so Ramosha says that, first of all, bearing arms, like Max was saying, bearing arms in a, in a dangerous context of non-military engagement is as much feminine as it is masculine, to bear arms for self-protection, Second of all, Ramosha says it's Bikuach Nefesh. He says it's dangerous to go out there among the Arabs. It's dangerous, he says. Let them stay home, he says. They don't have to stay home. We're not going to tell someone to stay home to avoid having to do this. He doesn't explain why, but that's what he assumes. We wouldn't tell a woman she has to stay home to avoid bearing arms. Even if she has the option of taking a chaperone, a male with a gun, it's better that they should both have guns. It's safer if two people have arms than the man has a gun and the woman has to play the helpless female. That's not helpful to anybody, he says. So let them both carry guns. So war, he says, war is not the derrick of women, he says, and they're also to go to war. This, is, this speaks to Max's question of the IDF. He says that, uh, that, that war, war, he thinks, is a problem. But again, war in a case where you're desperate. Israel's often desperate. Uh, you can argue it might be Pekuach Nefesh there as well. In a case where, where Israel needs every, uh, everybody who can hold a gun, that might, arguably it might be different. But uh, in, in general, Ramosha says the military is usher for women. And again, in a place that's safe, a place that is Becheska Shalom, also there are sewers. If they don't have a need to do it, then it's not feminine, then it's not Pikuach Nefesh, then it will be Aser. But uh, in a place that's dangerous, uh, like the, these Arab areas, then, then, it, then it would be Mutter. Again, we, can, we, 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 can, we have to ask, what's the halach in you know, modern-day U.S.? It, it, it's pretty safe. I feel pretty safe usually, but more and more people, and especially in some neighborhoods, in some areas, are feeling less and less safe, especially as Jews. Walking around in some areas, would the would that level of danger rise to the level where Amosha says a woman can pack heat uh, the same way a man can, or would you say that that that's just paranoia? Ramosha elsewhere says that sakana has a subjective element. If a person feels scared, that itself, as, lo- as long as the the risk is not objectively zero, and the person feels scared, Ramosha says that sometimes is considered pikuach nefesh. Maybe in a, in a society where the people do feel scared and the women feel scared, even if it's not a huge risk, maybe Ramosha would say they can carry guns. Again, hard to know. He wasn't talking about this, but certainly in the in the pretty uh, in the pretty dangerous situation of Israeli border settlements, places like Gush Etzion, places where we, we know what happens there sometimes. So certainly in places like that, Ramosha says 
a woman would be permitted to bear arms. In Rosh's final paragraph, So again, I'm not sure what to say. It is true that Postkim have relaxed some of the prohibitions that earlier Postkim held about women because they said things have changed. So it is possible for, for a Postkim to say that if you have a society where guns have become so ubiquitous and, or, or equally common between men and women, it is possible certainly for a Postkim to argue that, that today the, it is a style for women as well. Some Postkim are reluctant to do this. Some Postkim say that they, they, you need to be careful before you, you can't just say everything women do is always mutter because you know, they're, they're more reluctant to say that we can simply dismiss parts of Shulchan Aruch right and left uh, because people do, do things differently. But in principle, yes, in principle, I think the, main, the consensus approach is that, the, that, that this, this is one of those halachas that is contingent on culture and culture changes. So yes, so I, I'm, I, I agree. I think that is probably the mainstream opinion that we do have to look to the contemporary culture. And if the contemporary culture is that, uh, that, 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 gun, that certain things are no longer feminine, that potentially could change. I, I agree. In, prin- in principle, it, it possibly could. Uh, in, in principle, I think, I think that it might. Uh, I don't know anyone who says it specifically about guns, but I, I would agree that in principle, such an argument would, I think, be reasonable. Whether that's true in, in any particular society is debatable, certainly. And whether, the, and whether also, whether, the, whether a, given, a given situation is really that dangerous, you know, not, not everything is dangerous. So in, you know, in Silver Spring, I don't think things are that dangerous over here. There's always something can go wrong, but, uh, I, but, but I, I don't know that, that, that this would be a case of, of, of that much danger that Ramosha would say it's, it's normal for everyone to carry guns. But you're right, Ramosha does say that, Ramosha himself is telling us that in certain contexts, carrying guns is a is as feminine as it is masculine. In dangerous situations, it is, it is as feminine as it is masculine. And potentially, one could argue, although, again, Ramosha doesn't make this argument, one could argue that in a society that, that, that decided that women were going to be as trigger-happy as men and were going to be as uh, equal to men in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, firearms, potentially, I, I think one could make the argument that the halacha would change more generally as well. So Ramosha has one last paragraph where he deals with the question of Yael. He doesn't mention Judith with her sword, but he mentions Yael. Yael, according to the Midrashim, used a tent peg and not a sword. Why not? According to what we said, anytime there's danger, anytime it's a question of you know, small engagement, small skirmish, you know, self-defense, and so on, you can use a sword. So why couldn't she have felt free to use a sword? Ramosha says, and Rav Avadia says essentially the same thing, Ramosha says she didn't need to. He was subdued. He was sleeping. He was exhausted. He wasn't a threat to her. He wasn't an active threat. He was running for his life. He was begging her to help him. He wasn't going to attack her. So she was in no danger. She, she, she wasn't using a sword as a, as a short-term issue of self. She wasn't using a. She wasn't killing him in a short-term form of, uh, in a short-term sense of self-defense. 
she was killing him because she knew in the long run it would be helpful to Kal Yisrael if one of their great enemies was dead. Had he had a chance to recoup and recover and recuperate in a month or a year's time, he would come back with a new army. So it was important, maybe, Moshe didn't say all this, I'm speculating, it was important to kill him for the long term, maybe for the long term, or for the Kiddush Hashem, or for other reasons, because he was a Russia, he deserved to be killed, whatever the reason was. But it wasn't a question of self-defense. He was at her mercy, he was exhausted, he, he, there was no way he was going to be a threat to her. So, he was, he, so, he, so she, he was not a threat, she had all the time to choose her weapon carefully. So there, okay, there she, it's better that she use a, a, a tent peg than a sword. But certainly in a case where you're, where you're riding around on the roads and an Arab terrorist can pop out from behind any tree, certainly in such a case you don't have the luxury of saying, you know, wait here, terrorist, while I go get a tent peg so I can kill you. Certainly in such a case, he says, the, he says in that case, it's Baruch Rapash, he says in that case a weapon is the only way to go. And therefore, uh, and therefore, she could use weapons. Ramosha gives you a little bit of uh, advice at the end. Certainly, she has to learn how to use the weapon. That's uh, certainly imperative that she has to be trained. She has to be, uh, she has to be skilled in the use of the weapon. And she should certainly carry it where she can draw it easily and successfully. But yes, but um, ultimately, Ramosha says it is mutter. Let's read a little bit of Ravavadius Chuva. He covers roughly the same ground. His arguments are quite similar. He also begins in Yechavadat, Yishuvei HaSapar, border towns, border settlements, people, Rav Avadi is focusing on teachers. He says, he says, woman teachers and uh, nursery school attendants, Gananot, he says it's their job to take care of their kids. They have to be armed. In the U.S. there's always a debate, should we arm, every time they have a school shooting, should we arm teachers, should we arm playgroup attendants, do we want the school turned to armed camps? In America we have the luxury of arguing about that. In Israel apparently, at least as Rav Avadi understood it, this is not an issue. The security policy was we need to put a gun in the hand of every, uh, every preschool teacher. Well, not every preschool teacher, but at least some preschool teachers have to be armed. So the question is, can they carry guns? Um, can they carry guns? Can they uh, train? Can they train in the use of guns uh, to, to save themselves, to protect themselves, protect their students, he says, that, that from the murderous terrorists. So he begins with the same Gemara. The Gemara Nazir says women cannot bear arms. However, he says, it's a karnat nefashas, he says. The, the, the ruthless terrorists, they, they, their goal is to kill everyone and wreak havoc and destruction in Medinat Yisrael, he says. It is mutter for women to train as well, for train and bear arms, he says, to protect themselves and their students. He says, for the terrorists who are literally ruthless, lo yisu panim they have no mercy on anyone, he says. Pikuach nefesh, that's the simplest argument, he says. Forget whether... It is the derech in this context. It's not the derech in this context. It's because Nefesh, he says. They, they have to. They're, they're, their lives are in danger. This goes back to a ruling of Rabbi Yudah Chassid, great medieval authority, 800 years ago. That he says, In cases of dire need and exigent circumstances, we have the right to override certain halachas. If the enemy is attacking, besieging a Jewish city, or women who are traveling and they're worried about being molested, they can A, dress like men to avoid, uh, to pass themselves off as men, and B, they can carry weapons, A, to try to fool the non-Jews into thinking that they're men, to leave them alone, and, and also apparently to, maybe also to defend themselves. To defend themselves, he says. So we allow it for the, for the exigent need of Pikuach Nefesh, and to, to avoid them being attacked and, and raped and whatnot. So, so he says, what about Yoel? So why, if that's really true, again, he doesn't bring Judith, but what about Yael? If, if it's really true that when there's a, a danger and a threat, you can, you, a woman can use a sword, why did she have to use a tenpeg? I'll pee those midrashim. Again, same as Ramoshi says, Sistra was exhausted and sleeping. 
She could, and she could have killed him easily using a ten peg. She didn't need a sword, he says. But when time is of the essence, you're in a, you're, you're in a dangerous situation. You have to act swiftly. Terrorists are coming. They're armed. They have every, uh, they have every diabolical and uh, fiendish uh, weapon that they can get, he says. Certainly, he says, we have to meet them, uh, with, speak the same language to them. We have to bring weapons to oppose them, he says. To destroy them, l'hashmidem, l'hachniem, to, uh, to cow them, to destroy them, to, to foil their plans, he says. If someone tries to kill you, you need to kill him first. Women as well, he says. They can carry, they can use weapons. No chashash. It's pikoch nefesh, nothing to talk about, he says. He says, furthermore, he brings that, that, that shita of the Bach, that if it's not for, uh, for noi v'kishot, if it's not for the purpose of adornment, it's mutter. Ramosha rejected the svarah. He says weapons are different. Ravadya thinks that's a good svarah. Then he, uh, that's another reason to be makil, he says, they're not carrying the guns for style, they're carrying them for function. And then he says he saw Ramosha's tshuva, Ramosha agrees with him in conclusion, if not for exactly the same reason. So Ravavadya, in his final, uh, his final summary is, Bisikum, he says, it is permitted, Lamarot, Ulugananot, it is permitted for teachers and playgroup, uh, playgroup, playgroup attendants who live in these dangerous areas, Yishuvei Asapar, Lehisamein, to be trained, to train, Avalechos Beneshek, and to carry arms when they guard their schools, when they guard their charges. However, he says it's important they should be very particular, very careful about Tznius when they train. He says when they train, they have to still follow the laws of Tznius. We don't suspend all the Torah just because they're engaged in important work. Certainly when they're training, they have the luxury of time and, and they can arrange things to, properly. They certainly have to follow the laws of Tznius, as a good Jewish girl should, he said. And avoid Yichud, he said. Their, their instructor, the, if their instructor is a male, he says they have to avoid Yichud. They... they Either you know, train in an open area, or use a female instructor, or train with a group of people at a time. Whatever it is, we have to avoid yichud, which yichud is very important. But he says, uh, and they should have yerushalayim. But at the end of the day, may Hashem save us. So Moshe and Rav Avadia have remarkably similar tshuvas. They deal with pretty much the same question. They arrive at pretty much the same conclusion that it is absolutely mutter for a woman to bear arms. The details of their arguments are a little bit different. Ramosha focuses on the argument that when you're bearing it outside a military context for purposes of self-defense, at that point, in that context, bearing arms ceases to be a masculine habit and becomes a unisex habit. Uh, he also mentions Pikoch Nefesh, but that's his main argument, while Revavadia focuses on the Pikoch Nefesh argument. He says the primary, his primary argument is it is dangerous. It's dangerous to the women. The, the, the prohibition of cross-dressing can be set aside for the purpose of pikuach nefesh, and therefore he's also matter. He also mentions why it might, the prohibition might not apply, like or similar to Ramosha for other reasons. But the bottom line is, Rav Avadia feels it's a question of pikuach nefesh, and therefore it is mutter. What one very big difference, of course, whether the heter you rely on is pikuach nefesh or the heter is just that the, the technical prohibition of cross-dressing doesn't apply is whether one could violate other prohibitions to carry a weapon. Shabbos, can you carry a weapon outside when there's no Erev? If you hold a weapon as Mukta, can you carry the weapon? Can you violate other prohibitions to carry a weapon? According to Rav Avadia, the answer might be yes. If you really believe it's Bikoch Nefesh, it's, uh, the danger is uh, solid and tangible enough to be considered Bikoch Nefesh, you could probably violate other halachas as well, of Shabbos or other things as well, to carry the weapon. Point to Ramosha that the primary hatter is just that this is not technically considered cross-dressing. To, to violate other Isurim wouldn't be as clear. Ramosha does mention the concern of Pikuach Nefesh as well, although it isn't the primary, it isn't his primary argument. So according to Ramosha, it would be less clear whether he would have allowed 
people to carry these weapons when there was some type of Shabbos violation involved. But according to Rav Avadia, it seems pretty clear that his main argument seems to be that one of his main arguments is that, it's not, is that it really is Pikuach Nefesh, which overrides the prohibition of Le'il Bashgever. So it's certainly plausible that, uh, that Shabbos and other prohibitions could be overridden as well. Of course, contemporary posts can have discussed these questions with all the shuls and the armed guards as well these days. Again, not every case is the same. The, the guarding a shul in, in Camille is not the same thing as, uh, as patrolling a, uh, an isolated yeshuv uh, half a mile from an Arab village in Eretz Yisrael. Those are two very different scenarios. But at the end of the day, the, these, these are the rulings of Ramosha and Ravavadia in relatively similar scenarios, in fairly similar scenarios. They're both matir, albeit for a variety of reasons. They both say that, uh, that this is perfectly acceptable. The women should, should feel armed. Even though Yael did not use a weapon, that was because, they both say that was because she didn't need one as much. It wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as essential for her. Sisera was at her mercy. He wasn't any kind of threat. She had the time and the leisure to choose, the, choose a weapon, uh, the most suitable weapon. On the other hand, neither of them mention uh, Hanukkah and the story of Yehudis, who used a sword apparently. But again, the story of Yehudis is not really a canonical story for us, and it's hard to bring. I don't actually know whether the Midrasha mentioned the sword or not, or that's just from the, from the book of Judith. It's hard to derive actual halacha from the Judith story, but these are the rulings of Ramosha and Ravavadya. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a freilichin rest of Hanukkah, everyone. Have a good week and a good Shabbos. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you. I just have a curiosity. Thank you. Yes. This is just because of the Renaissance uh, in at the beginning, um, and it's a completely different topic than the fascinating one tonight. But the the great Renaissance uh, dramatist Ben Jonson, um, who the first great dramatist to have a first folio before Shakespeare, wrote to John Selden in 1617 about Farim Chofdeis. Okay, and uh, and obviously because he's writing for a, trans, a transvestite English theater where, um, where where men played women's parts, and he wanted a loophole, and Selden wouldn't give him the loophole, but he darshaned uh, the pasuk and, and pointed out that Uncleus, uh says, well, you know, we don't have it's simlas isha, but it's not beged ish, it's 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 clay gever, uh-huh. and so clay gever, and so uh, Uncleus says Zion, you know, that it is a weapon, uh-huh. um, a military. Um, Weapon, and then um, Selden talks from, uh, gives an example from the Mora Nevuchim, where um, where the Rambam says that um, actually this is a prohibition not against cross dressing, but it's um, well, it's against ancient idolatrous rites whereby male priests worshipped Venus uh, in women's clothing and women worshipped Mars, the god of war, in 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 in, in armor. Is it so? so uh-huh. It's really about idolatry rather uh-huh. than. Uh, Anything. Well, he's looking. He isn't committing himself to giving a hetter, but uh-huh. he's just sharing his notes. <laughs>